Welcome to Radio Freak Utopia, the podcast about global LGBTI human rights. I'm your host, Ian Likas, and I'll be your guide to the creative, urgent work taking place all around the world to make our communities more welcoming for LGBTI people. So what does it mean, what does it look like to change the world? Sometimes we think about traditional forms of political activism, protests, marches, lobbying, organizing, and many more tactics. But we also know that art is fundamental to change, challenging us to see the world in new ways, to imagining new possibilities, to shifting our thinking and our gaze in ways large and small. On today's episode of Radio Freak Utopia, I'm speaking with Miko Ona, an extraordinarily talented photographer working on a project called Limitless on the lives of LGBTQ African immigrants in North America and Europe. Miko has already done extensive photography in the United States, Canada, and in the Caribbean, and this fall he's heading to Western Europe to continue shooting. If you can, you want to check out his project online at LimitlessAfricans.com while listening to our conversation. I'll also put links on our website. So here's my conversation with Miko. So, I'm here today with Mikael Awona. You have just completed a Kickstarter to support your photography. Could you tell us a little bit about the project you're working on? Yeah, so... Hi, my name is Mika Luna, and I am a queer Nigerian-Swedish-American photographer. And so I've been doing a photography project on LGBTQ African immigrants for the past three and a half years, and specifically trying to debunk the myth that it is, quote-unquote, un-African to be LGBT. And so I use photography as a way, especially specifically looking at people who are queer and trans and African and exploring their their exploration of their style and their visual expression and how that can then visually debunk this myth. And so the Kickstarter was to bring the work to Europe. I've shot about 34 people, primarily North America, and so I'm going to finish it this fall in Europe with a series of shoots there, spotlighting LGBT African immigrants and refugees there. Where are you going? Europe. So I'm going to a few countries now. Like I'm going to like six countries now. It's going to, starting in Belgium, then Austria, France, the UK, Portugal, and then Sweden. So I'm going co- around quite a few places, yeah. Exciting. How'd you come to this project? Yeah, so it, it really started from like personal experiences. You know, growing up, I'm queer and Nigerian, and so I really had to struggle with wrestling with these two experiences at the same time. My family is very, very conservative, and when I kind of came into queerness, I really felt pretty immediately that there was a conflict and that my family would not be very accepting. And I was outed when I was 15 years old, and what started to kind of come out during that process come out (laughs) during that process was this idea that I'd been like corrupted by the West by growing up with white people growing up in America etc like this is an American thing this is a white thing da 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 so the idea was let's start sending him back to Nigeria twice a year and just by exposure to Nigerian culture I'll be de-gayed right and so when you think about that line of thinking, it really shows that there's an oppositionality that's set up between African identity and queerness, transness, LGBTQ identities. And so what that eventually culminated with was me being put through a series of exorcisms in Nigeria, priests being brought in, traditional healers being brought in to quote-unquote drive the gay out of me. Um, and so like after that experience, like 
you know, that was incredibly traumatizing, right? Like, I already felt that oppositionality I was being placed, but then there was so much trauma that was happening for me in the Nigerian context. And so I felt like I really could not be Nigerian, you know, like, that's kind of the levels to which it gets to. And so this project very much is one for me about exploring what healing looks like and how can people who have these two identities who are, you know, LGBTQ and African, how can we live full-bodied lives Mm -hmm. and love ourselves despite these artificial constructs which say that we can't exist? And how has that unfolded as you've worked on the project? Um, It's been really interesting because in terms of my own perspective has also really evolved too. Um, When I started the project, I really kind of... Um, wanted to do one that was a bit very, very like negative, if if I would say. So if if people see my photos, the photos are very very uplifting, very very bright, very very colorful, very very vibrant. So it's kind of really evoking these themes of like healing and emancipation. Um, when I started though, I wanted to do one that was much more negative, right? Um, it was very much replicating. Um, Toni Morrison talks about the white gaze. And so, like, even if you look at a lot of the work that's been done on LGBTQ Africans, everything is very, very negative. Like, the few images out there are all about us being beaten in our homelands, destroyed, you know, killed. Um, And so you don't really see many positive narratives about us. And so I had to kind of really deconstruct that for myself. And I did that through conversations with people. So I did about six months of, like, just preliminary interviews about 40 people mm-hmm. and I saw that there was a hunger for something different something really positive and so that's really kind of shaped my direction with the work and it's made it's made it one that's really about healing and so like when I as I've been shooting the the project it's like I look to these individuals you know I grew up feeling so broken about these two identities I look to these two and these individuals to see a light for myself mm-hmm. and to see how they've transformed themselves and that I, that I can then capture that and heal myself as well. Oh, fantastic. I mean, one of the things through my human rights work that's been interesting is sort of learning just how much incredible, resilient activism there is in Africa coming from LGBTI communities, mm. and that is not getting covered. Certainly, the, this podcast is one part of getting that. But this gets to the idea that there are many roads to activism as well as many sources that you know, go beyond a single narrative. Yeah, there's there's there mo- there mo- there's always more than one story, right? And it's not to say that, of course, that other stuff is not true, right? Like it is true, mm-hmm. you know. The especially on the continent, the conditions are really, really bad in most countries, you know. Um, not to say every country, but you know, in many countries. And so, but people still live, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And also, like, and and people still like can find spaces of love and healing. And so I think it's just time to really kind of complicate the narrative and also like present an additional, um, an additional, additional like image for us to look to. So like, you know, for example, if imagine like you're like a queer African person or gay African person, trans African person. And the only thing you hear about yourself is negative right in your home and home country context and then if you look for images online everything even something that's done by like you know really well-meaning organizations there's really everything is just negative it's like okay we're trying to save these people and like i hope that my work can be there just so people can also know that in addition to all of that there are resources but like there's an additional way that we can see a positive light for ourselves 
as well. So, you know, what are some of the remarkable stories you've encountered, sort of the, the people you have photogra- photographed and have spoken with? Yeah, um, there have been so many people. So I like, I mean, um, like one of the ones that was super, it was really, really the the last shoot I did. Um, it was in Brooklyn. And I was like, there was like these four queer African women in the snow. <laughs> and like that one, that one, that one was kind of just like, I was, I was trying to figure out, I wanted to close shooting in the U.S. I was like, you know, because I'm kind of moving on to other projects and stuff. And so that was kind of a one-off project. Um, and it ended up just being really, really magical in terms of like, just when we were talking with each other ahead of time. You know, there was a lot of conversations around, like, spirituality as well, and also really exploring how, historically, LGBTQ people we would now say are LGBTQ African people have actually always been really the kind of spiritual leaders in their communities, Mm -hmm. right? And so, like, the guardians is what they were seen. And so... And there's so many historical records and from pre-colonial Africa that show this, like, you know, really these esteemed people, sorcerers, etc. And so we really kind of talked about, you know, magic, you know, and stuff, but also kind of just like how, like, um, the innate magic and the innate power within LGBTQ African people. And I think that's kind of really powerful to, like, kind of, rather than it being a conversation that's all about just the struggles that we have, one that's about how incredible and amazing we are as individuals and how we can transform our lives and those around us. Yeah, I mean, that particular image just, you know, every time I look at it, you know, blows me away, you know, the four women, you know, sitting, you know, you know in, on the snowy day. Uh, so, you know, hearing more about this, I, I will, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll arrange to put some images on the website. Awesome. Um, yeah, what, you know, what others, well, I guess, you know, what other stories have you, why did you choose to yeah. work with LGBTIP Africans in the United States? Yeah, so a lot of that's connected to, like, my own experiences, you know, so because mm-hmm. I grew up in the U.S., you know, um, so I wanted to do people in diaspora. The way I kind of started the work was that I mm-hmm. saw the work of Zanili Moholy, and she's a black lesbian South African photographer, and she did mm-hmm. this amazing series called Faces and Phases on black lesbians in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And so um, I also don't want to necessarily, sp- I don't want to really speak for people on the continent, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, that's not my experience. You know, I am an LGBTQ African person, but I have a lot of privilege because I live in the West. Um, and so I don't, really, I, want, I don't want to speak for people in that context, but also like, I think that we have a, a degree of leverage to be visible in ways that people on the continent really can't be. Mm. And so we can really share our stories and share um, our narratives and share our images and our our faces especially too and have a degree of safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that also feeds into it. But also, you know, because this is my experience being a queer Nigerian American, you know, that that's really why I kind of wanted to anchor it in that experience as well, too. Because even if you think about, like, you know, in terms of things, that resources, you know, there's not really much on, like, LGBTQ, like, black people in general. Um, but the little, the, the amount that there is, you know, there are, there is stuff, but almost all of it is around, like, African Americans. And so there really isn't very much on, like, African immigrants, especially right. when you add in that LGBTQ layer. So we're kind of like, we, we are kind of an invisible-ish mm. minority, even within the context of like black 
and black queer thought, etc. too. So I think that's also why I think it's important to kind of also kind of help enrich our understanding of what the body of, you know, what blackness looks like. Because it's not just, you know, there's there's many different many different types of people, yeah, as well. Yeah. I mean I was interesting because I was thinking as I looked again through the photos of, you know, you have you know people you're working with from Nigeria, from Rwanda, from Morocco, from uh, Somalia, mm-hmm. uh, trying to think of where in Southern Africa, but certainly, you know, also how, you know, what similarities and differences you have in their stories and what you learn, but also thinking about how, what it means to be LGBTI African in the United States as yeah. distinct from the, you know, there is no single black experience, but the yeah. traditional African American population of this country and sort of what is distinct. So I'm just interested to learn more about the sort of similarities and differences. Yeah, I mean, I think there's tons of similarities because a lot of us are still like LGBTQ and Black, right? Because like those are kind of the over like the overwhelming things, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in terms of like experiences with like police, okay. you know, with like HIV criminalization in the U.S., um, you know, laws, you know. But I think there are other things too in terms of the differences in terms of like especially within our communities, you know, how do we relate to the LGBTQ identity? So I think with a lot of, um, like, African-American LGBTQ people, there's a lot of conversations around, like, the black church, right? Or, like, you know, for example, they might be, like, um, you know, um, one of, like, the African-American Muslim groups, you know what I'm saying? So, like, there's, like, kind of a specific history there kind of tied in with like local religious institutions, especially with the black and um, especially with the black church. Um, whereas for like Africans, when we kind of talk, so when they talk about like oh the, the, the struggles there, it's kind of really centered around religion. I feel like more so, um, and kind of there is still that idea that it's not a black thing. Um, whereas for Africans, it's very much like this is not our culture. You know, this is. It's not to say that that also does not. A, affect African-Americans, but, like, that's really kind of the first thing that's kind of pulled out for the LGBTQ Africans. Like, this is not our culture. This is not an African thing. Da-da-da-da-da. And so the religion is still really big, but just, like, the there's a lot of nuance in terms of religion and the context of colonization on the African continent compared mm-hmm. to what it was here. So there's, there's I think there's a little bit of divergence there um, in terms of, like, kind of what that crux of the argument for mm-hmm. kind of the homophobia, transphobia can be. Makes sense. I mean, so much, you know, in launching this podcast, it's because, you know, one of the driving forces that we are dealing with the world in motion and mm-hmm. the ideas that are, you know, people moving around, ideas moving around, you know, both positive and negative words that are too complicated, <laughs> more complicated mm-hmm. than that. But the, the language of sexuality and gender, even that homosexuality, you know, being un African, yet, of course, Africa is so much of the anti LGBT laws are, of course, the product of colonialism. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, certain things like even using the initialism LGBT, LGBTI, or Q, yeah. you know, that language comes out of the West. The rainbow flag comes out of the West. Absolutely. And so that gives little hooks for people to make these o- overarching claims that then fall apart. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, there are so many words that are in our traditional, like, in our, like, traditional languages mm-hmm. that exist for people we, you know, we would now say, like, oh, these are LGBTQ people, but they wouldn't. So, like, I had this amazing conversation with this um, Ghanaian queer woman yesterday, 
And she was talking about when she went to back to Ghana and she was there, um, she was in the market and she saw this person walk by and she was like, is that, is that? And, and they were um, dressed in women's clothing and they were selling goods. And she was like, was that a man who just walked by dressed in women's clothing? And she was like, nobody else was reacting. So she like, almost like ran. <laughs> and like, one person looked around and was like, wow, no, that, that, was, that was a man in women's clothing, you know, selling goods in the market. And so she went and she asked um, some of her Ghanaian colleagues, you know, she, she's Ghanaian, but she grew up in Canada and in the US. So she asked some of her Ghanaian colleagues, she's like, like like, what is this? You know, what's going on here? You know, she's queer, but she had to ask, she tried to act really dumb so she could like almost kind of get, kind of um, get the answers out there. And they were like, oh, that's just, uh, I think the tree word is like bam bamba or something like that, which just means like man who acts like a woman. Hmm. And so, yeah, and they're like, she's like, what? And she's like, they're like, yeah, you know, they, they're just in the market, they sell food, da 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 da. And so eventually she was like, well, is he a homosexual? And they're like, no, 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 God, no. And so, like, it shows that there's, like, really, really different understandings, you know? And so, you know, that Western word mm-hmm. does not apply, mm-hmm. right? And especially even in their understanding. Um, but this is, like, a cross-dresser who's, like, in the market and is... Nobody else was reacting. She was the only one who was surprised. And because she was coming from a Western perspective. So, like, it's, it, it just shows that it's, like, really complicated. And this was recently. You know, Ghana's not a very it's not accepting space for LGBTQ people. But this person has a space of acceptance mm-hmm. with their specific role. And they have a, lang- a name, a word for them in their language that also evokes it as well. Yeah. Wow, that's a great story. And even, you know, does the language of transgender begin to capture or not this person's existence and their category, you know, which is clearly a recognizable social role. Yeah, like, I mean, there's there's so much in terms of the history where you see um, there was this one case, so I was just doing, I just spent a lot of time doing research on the history, mm-hmm. be like, why is it like this, you know, <laughs> like, um, and so one, you see how it was like, a lot of these were just like Western colonial laws and Western colonial administrations, and I think the thing that people don't understand is that, like, oh, well, those laws were there, were they really implemented, like, how could that have affected things? And I saw this incredible court case from, um, I guess, modern-day Zimbabwe in 1924. And it was this case of this um, young man named Nomkadana. And, but he, named, he went by, um, by the word, by the, by the name Maggie. And Nomkadana, or Maggie, she, like, she worked as a nurse and dressed in full woman's clothing, heels, panties. This isn't the thing. They're like heels, panties, underwear, everything. Da, da, da. In 1924 in rural Zimbabwe, right? And the reason that Nomkadana Maggie kind of comes out, you know, not comes out, but is like kind of someone who I know about is because there was a court case mm-hmm. where um, Nomkadana went in front, was pulled in front of the high court of the colonial administration. And the colonial administration was, was, it was, it was um, asking and pressing the fa- um, Nomkadana's father to be like, how is this possible? You know, this is in rural Zimbabwe. Like, this is, this is unacceptable. This is against our rules. Like, this is against the colonial rules. And Nomkadana's father was just like, my son has always dressed in women's clothing. I've tried to give him men's clothing every time, but he didn't want it, so I just have always accept- accepted it. And they were pressing him 
the father to say that he was mentally affected so that he could be like, you know, who knows, imprisoned, something like that. Because for them, homosexuality was a mental illness or you know, transgenderism was a mental illness. All these things were mental illnesses. But in, for the father, the father was like, no, he is not mentally affected. This is who he is. And so you see how there was a coercion, you know, trying to push the father, push the culture mm -hmm. to apply these words that weren't applicable, you know, like LGBT, like homosexuality, etc. And then also to have these negative connotations associated with the word. And so I just think that there's so much there in terms of the understanding of colonialism and how that's really just really destroyed our understanding of kind of these traditional roles in society, as you said, you know what I'm saying, in terms of like, you know, the person in the market, you know, I was talking about Ghana, like all these things, like there are these been traditional roles that have always been carved out in every indigenous society for people who are, you know, sexual and quote unquote gender minorities. Yeah, I was in reading your, reading about the project and about your work, I was really struck by the story also you talked about at some point about, was it a Ghanaian empress? Oh, Angolan. Angolan, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and sort of, can you tell us about that? And sort of. Yeah, um, I'd be happy to. Um, so, um, her name was Inzinga, and so she ruled um, uh, the kingdom of Ndongo and Matamba, which is in modern day Angola. She ruled mm -hmm. there for like 40, 40 years, ish, mm -hmm. forty years, and so she led this forty-year um, war of resistance against Portuguese encroachment. You know, and so she was just like just incredible, incredible black woman. Just like, there's all these incredible stories about her where the Portuguese were trying to make her, wouldn't give her even a chair at the table for negotiations, right? Because they're so racist. And so, and so she refused. She had one of her male servants come and sit, and she sat on his back. So she would be at eye level with the, um, the Portuguese, right? And so you show, there's this incredible black woman. And the thing that's also incredible about her is that, she, her title and her language, and this is how we get again into how the understandings of gender and sexuality are so much more multifaceted in terms of indigenous understandings. Her title and her language was Ngola, which means king. And so she ruled dressed in all male clothing, and she had a harem of young men dressed as women who were her wives, right? So if you think about that, if you kind of, kind of think about that, that's basically like, a butch queen with a harem of drag queens leading a war, a 40 year war of resistance against European colonization. Like how crazy, in the 1600s, you know? It's crazy, it's, it's, but it's not crazy if you think about how different and how rich indigenous understandings of sexuality and gender are. This is a story we need to know much more about, that's for sure. Yeah, and like the thing is that like people don't, this is not something people are like talking that much about because our histories have been destroyed. And so like, it's like, I think so much, so when I look at that, like these rich understandings on one hand, and then you see all of these brutal laws and this brutal, these brutal attacks on LGBTQ people in Africa, um, you see that, you see that, it's possible for us to get back to something that's much more rich and that the cause of that was colonization. And so, you know, even as people say, this is un-African, this is not that, the whatever, we need, people need to really interrogate where are we even getting our understanding of what African identity is? Because that is also, again, that homogenizing idea is again, a European construct. How does this end up playing out in the, in the photography? Yeah, I mean, so, um, it was really interesting um, 
because like I think I just kind of really kind of contextualize my work around the history because I think I mean, history was my second major like history is so important so like um, I contextualize it around it but it comes out in different ways one that was really interesting was I did a shoot in Toronto um, with a trans Burundian woman and a queer Burundian person and they brought these like symbols from their culture. One was like kind of like this like these like handful of like spears, like these small these small spears. And afterwards, when they were talking about it, um, the trans Burundian woman was like, "Yeah, you know, um, queer and trans African people are always kind of like the warriors leading people into battle. You know, we are the leaders of our communities, and so that's why she brought that in as kind of a prop." You know, so like you see some of these echoes there and especially with people who connect to the history in what they respond, how they talk about what the work means to them. I was just thinking about sort of what the work means to them and particularly, you know, and thinking about even this podcast, make sure I'm not just taking stories from other people, but rather, you know, doing something that promotes the voices of people doing remarkable work in all sorts of places. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, your photography, you know, mirrors that. Mm. And I'd be interested in sort of hearing about sort of the more of the reactions to the photography, to the project from the people, you know, whom you're shooting. Yeah. Um, it's been really overwhelmingly positive. Like, one of the the first people I shot, um, her name was Tana, and she's actually the one who I did a lot of workshopping of the ideas for the project around. Mm-hmm. And she's a bisexual Nigerian-Liberian woman. And so after I shot her, it was, like, one of my first shoots, too. And so I was, like, I was really nervous. <laughs> and so I did the shoot, and I wasn't sure how it went. I was like, ah, I don't know. I was like, wow. Um, and so... I would give people the camera to look and look at the pictures afterwards. And so she was really quiet. I was like, oh, my head. In my head, I was like, I was trying to pretend like I wasn't looking. I was like, ooh, just trying to do something. But I was dying on the inside. She was really quiet. She was just going, 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 going. And like 10, like five minutes later, she just said, she was like, yeah, you know, like, um, I've been planning and trying to kind of actualize that I want to be... I want to be one type of person by the age of 35. Like, I want to have these type of traits in me by the time I'm 35. And looking at these photos, I see that I already embody Mm. those traits. Mm. And that's when I knew that I was kind of creating something special and that it was something that kind of resonated with people on a deeper level. And so that, that kind of showed me that, you know, people were seeing parts of themselves that even that they hadn't realized, which I thought was really cool. No, that's fantastic. That's incredible. What are some of the your favorite images? I mean, I know that you're, they're all your children, so you love them all. Um, uh-huh. No, I like some of those. <laughs> so <if you're> gonna... <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> you know how it is, though. Oh, yeah. It's so that, like, you just like the most. Um, I mean, my favorite image is the four women in the snow. That's, yeah. It's, it's stunning. <laughs> it's, it's, it's breathtaking. Yeah, that's my, that's my favorite image. Uh, I shot that one in January. That was the last shoot I did. Um, and, um, other ones that come to mind um, was the one of the the queer Burundian person, the trans Burundian woman mm-hmm. in um, Canada that I shot. And then the other one, which was just, I guess, two more. But the other one, which is kind of really, I kind of I feel like iconic of the project, was um, a shoot that I did with Brian, a queer Burun- a queer, queer Rwandan man. I think I know which one that yeah, is. Yeah, where he had like the, the really brightly colored galet, yeah, mm-hmm. and then he had the, the red lipstick, and he has the beard and like the the nose septum yeah. piercing. That film, I feel like, is also very, very, very iconic. Right. <laughs> iconic image. Um, and um, the last one, 
it's like kind of like because it used to be my favorite one, but now it's kind of so many so many images, so many favorites. So many images now. Um, but the other one is of um, Gaysier, who is I shot. That was my first international, sh- my second international shoot. I did. I shot her in Trinidad and Tobago, mm. and she's Nigerian and Trinidadian. And there's a picture of her. Oh, there are two pictures of her. Oh, the first, my, my third one is of her, of her jumping in an alleyway, and I kind of caught her, kind of just like almost really in suspended animation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one is also one of my favorite images. Yeah, that's really nice. How has this project changed you as a photographer? <laughs> a lot. Like, um, like I didn't really even see myself as a photographer until I mean I've been doing photography for like eight years, but I didn't see myself as a photographer really until I really kind of jumped into this really kind of head first. Um, it's really, it's my first independent project. I did another project before in Taiwan as a Fulbright scholar. So this is my first like solo project that I'm doing. And um, sometimes I look at my, all my, the old pictures, I'm like, oh, these are rough. Like, <laughs> but I, like, I really learned a lot um, just kind of just from doing about the nuts and bolts of photography. My understanding of lighting has vastly improved it was kind of rough but I also got to experiment with I did a lot of experimentation and so even when I like look at some of the photos like I have like a folder where I kind of just like look at them in order I can really see my progression as an artist and even things that I was trying like I would try to shoot with a really way different aperture for like a few months and then where I would try to shoot with very like dramatic lighting that did kind of cuts across the face and you see a bunch of shots like that for so it's like you kind of see epics in terms of my learning process with photography mm. and now I feel like because I've experimented with such a broad range of different techniques and stuff like that um, it's really kind of allowed me to know what I like in my images um, and I feel like the four queer African women which is the last shoot was kind of the culmination of that entire learning process. And I'm going to be doing a very different set, different style of images when I go to Europe in the fall. I'm mm. changing it up a little bit. Oh, I'll look forward to seeing what that it brings us. Yeah, I'm mostly just using more, because before I shot everything 100% natural light, um, and I, I'm getting my, because now I'm a photographer, I have my first um, kind of like strobe light to kind of add in additional dimensionality in terms of the images. So it's going to make it gonna make it a little bit more flashy, a little bit more glossy. That'd be nice. Cool. Tell us about the name, you know, how you came to the name of the project. The name, yeah. Um, so I I spent a lot of time just workshopping. Like with all of my projects, I spend months like thinking about the idea. Mm-hmm. Like I spend months just thinking about that, talking about it with people, trying to see what their thoughts are, etc. And so I knew I was gonna do something on LGBTQ people, African people, um, but I didn't know what, a name that could kind of capture it. And so I had a friend at the time, at the time, <laughs> but um, I was talking about it with her and trying to figure out an, an idea. And so we were talking, she was like, what are some of the things you think about? And I was like, I was thinking about like, these limits on who we are mm. that are imposed by society, you know, like, because we're like LGBT, we're black, we're immigrants, people are, can be poor, you know, all these different things. There's all these things that are just so limiting, you know, but how do we overcome that? And that's how she thought of the idea of like limitless, you know, so I'm saying so despite all of these ostensible limits on who we are, there are limitless ways for us to express ourselves and to be who we are and to love ourselves. And so that's kind of why it's, it's like limit and then it has in the parentheses this. 
So, yeah, it's kind of like a little artsy thing where you're trying to, like, <laughs> trying to think about, like, it kind of, and that's why the parentheses are there kind of as, like, to evoke that idea of limits, but then despite that, the overcoming, yeah, aspect of it. Yeah, so there's a lot of meaning, and I appreciate you asking, because I feel like not a lot of people ask me, like, the name, and I'm like, oh, I spent so much time thinking about the name, and nobody even cares, like. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's evocative, it, it does jump out, okay. and not only because of the parentheses. Okay, okay, thank you, thank you. When, when you thought about what did you think, when, did you have an idea when you thought about it? It struck me as that it was about limits and limitless, I mean, that it was sort yeah. of both at the same time. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's the, yeah, the happy, more authentic I'm happy answer. somebody got it. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. <laughs> what else should we know about, you know, the project, about what you're doing? Um, yeah, I mean, the thing that I really try to make sure that people know, I mean, we've, it's, it's very because we've had a conversation about this, is that it's not that, like, African people are, like, inherently homophobic or transphobic. You know, I mm-hmm. think that's what the narrative really gets spun by, especially in like Western and like white LGBTQ spaces, it's like, oh my God, like these African people are so homophobic and transphobic, you know, but this is really kind of due to colonization by the West, you know, and so if we really take a step back and look at the history, you know, talked about of Nzinga, of Nomkadana, of all these different types of these different people who have always existed, you know, and how colonization has really been the really crux of shifting that. And so, I see the project as also being one about decolonization, you know, and trying to fix what the West destroyed in many ways. And so I think that's why I just really tried to make sure and really try to problematize, you know, is that even though this project is very specifically about, like, kind of our struggles in, you know, um, African spaces as LGBTQ spaces, if you read the interviews, a lot of the interviews also go into, like, racism in the LGBTQ community. Um, They go into... Um, xenophobia that big people experience and so there's a lot of other layers and it's not just this narrative that African people are homophobic it's that's not that's not the case at all and I I, you can even see transformation in people's families and how people Mm -hmm. relate to their families too (coughs) has you know your family changed you know its perspective you know since your teens um quite a few people have not gonna say everybody, <laughs> but the majority of people really have. It's it's been it's it's kind of like a huge shift. Um, I mean, as a teenager, I felt completely alone, completely isolated. I was going through so much trauma, you know. Um, but then, remember when I did the Kickstarter? I did GoFundMe before, but Kickstarter too. So many of the biggest supporters were my family members. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, I think it really it really shows that it's not just this African people are this way, you know, like, no, my family, I probably would, I would not have hit my goal without my family, mm. you know? And so, um, it's not to say that it's like, it's like this rose colored, this, this like, oh, this amazing, beautiful story, you know, like this, it was years. It took many, many years. Um, but I think, yeah, it's not just, you know, I even talking to this, um, Zambian trans woman and um, she grew up in Zambia you know she lived there for many years you know she had to she had to leave you know she's I think seeking asylum now mm. but um, when she was telling me her story she was saying that when she first came out to her mother um, as gay at the time but when she first came out to her mother um, her mother was like oh my god da 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 but then like 
within like the next day, her mother, because her mother was also a traditional healer and had a lot of access to traditional, you know, healing and traditional understanding. And so her mother came to her and was like, you know, actually, you know, in terms of our traditional uh, society and a pre-colonial society, etc., we have always, you people have been the ones we revered the most. So I accept you. I love you. Da 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 da. So even as everything else was going around, her mother was like, you know, I accept you. This is in, like, a really poor area of Zambia, you know? And so that's the place you'd be like, oh, my God, there must be no acceptance there. No, but she accepted her because her mother was connected to her, the traditional understandings of gender and sexuality. And so, like, I think that kind of just gets again to, like, how complicated it is. Yeah. Great. Anything else? Um, I don't think so. I really appreciate it. Thank you for, like, having me on and chatting with me. I really appreciate it. Um, Yeah. This is a total delight. Yeah, I look forward to getting some of those images up on the website and just, you know, continuing our conversations. Yeah, and if um, people are interested in finding the work, they can go on the website, limitlessafricans.com. Cool. Are there other social media that they should follow? They can social... I think it's like, my name's a little hard to spell, uh, but if they want to try, um, I'm on social media, I'm Mikel Awunda everywhere. Um, you can find my name on the website, limitlessafricans.com, or if you want to spell it, uh, M-I-K-A-E-L, then O-W-U-N-N-A. And I'll include that on the website in the promotional material for this episode. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ian. Absolute pleasure. Cool. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Miko. Check out RadioFreeKutopia.org for links to his website, LimitlessAfricans.com. And through his website, you can find links to the rest of his work and to his social media feeds, including Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe to Radio Free Kutopia on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm now four episodes into Radio Freak Utopia, and I'm even more excited than ever to be working on this project. Over the weeks to come, you'll be hearing from one of the leaders of Taiwan's marriage equality movement, from a gay man running for Congress in Chile, and from other changemakers in Russia, China, and elsewhere. So please take a moment to follow Radio Freak Utopia on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please share the news about this episode and any other episodes you've enjoyed on your own social media feeds. Word of mouth is absolutely essential to getting the news out about Radio Freak Utopia. In the months to come, I'm going to put a lot of work into building a podcast community through social media and on Patreon. I hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon sponsor at a dollar an episode, five or ten dollars an episode, for whatever works for you. I'm really, really happy with how launching Radio Freak Utopia has gone, but I also know how much better it can be, especially in terms of sound production, editing, theme music, and all those little touches that improve your listener experience. So if you can support the podcast at patreon.com, just search for Radio Freak Utopia, that would be amazing. And I'll see you back here in two weeks.